This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. I'm LaToya Johnson, host for the New Books Network, and it is a pleasure to be here with Dr. Bettina Judd, writer, scholar, and performer, to discuss her book, Feelin', Creative Practice, Pleasure, and Feminist and Black Feminist Thought. Dr. Judd is an Associate Professor of Gender, Women, and Sexuality Studies at the University of Washington, and her research centers on Black women's creativity and our use of visual art, literature, literature, and music to develop feminist thought. Welcome, Professor Judd, and thank you for being here with me. Thank you so much for having me. So before we focus on feeling, can you tell us a bit about you and what led to feeling's concept? Right. So um, I first firstly think of myself as an artist or as someone who creates um and produces knowledge primarily through artistic practice, whether it be through poetry, um, performance, um, or like visual art. And so um, in thinking about kind of my place as it relates to um, the academy and to theory, I really wanted to produce something that um, not only reflected that, but also gave like a theoretical ground, a theoretically grounded reason for creative practice, um, and, and as a theoretical, as theoretical, as theory making work, and so, um, yeah, that's that's how uh, this that was the kind of impetus of this project was to kind of defend <laughs> like my place um, that in this kind of in between world of academic. Um, parlance and then also create the the creative worlds that I inhabit and then also to to give myself permission in the process to learn about my own creative process um, as well. You reference Arthur Claude Brown's description of feeling feeling as soul language. Why is it important to format the term accurately, meaning not using the apostrophe? Right. Yeah. No. I, I, the that apostrophe, right? As we know, is is this way of marking a kind of uh, incompletion or truncation, right? Whereas, like, I'd like us 
to think about the uses of Black language in describing this theoretical concept as already whole, as completely thought out, um, and uh, like as, com- as, as non-derivative of something else, right? Like, although we are using this kind of, this language that is definitely based in, in the, the colonial <laughs> imperialistic relationship um, with the English language, um, how we come to the language and how we shape our own language is complete, right? And so marking that by not using the apostrophe to to kind of signal that, oh, there should be a G here is, is really what my kind of intention was in doing that. Uh, Phelan references creatives such as Lucille Clifton, Avery Sunshine, Aretha Franklin, Deanna Lawson, and Joyce J. Scott. How did you decide what artists and creatives you would analyze? In some ways, it was um, my encounter with work and what that encounter kind of signaled to to me that um, revealed um, the various affective registers, um, feelings that I kind of explore. So, um, for instance, Joyce Scott came up, you know, I am originally, originally from Baltimore. I was raised in Southern California, but I'm from Baltimore. And, you know, Joyce Scott is a Baltimore legend, um, And when I, you know, was thinking of like what artists, what Black women artists really engage with the, uh, this kind of, what I call the the kind of visual field of Black motherhood, like this, and the ways that um, that field is so mired with a, with a racialized shaming of Black motherhood, Joy Scott's No Mommy Me kind of made complete sense. And it was a... It was a, and, and I was introduced to it by historian um, Elsa Barkley Brown, actually. And so it it encapsulated a way, a narrative of um, relating to the mammy image in um, Black visual art that was from the perspective of a Black child, right, who um, is not a, is, is, totally absent from that kind of public visual world um, and or whose absence makes up the possibility of that public visual world. And this image is a beautiful kind of leather and bead sculpture um, gives us the, the framework for what it means to desire mothering and what this kind of masked figure means in a real world concept in, a, in, in not in a fantasy world where black folks are, are puppets or are kind of avatars or something, but a real mother. Right. And so um, it was a perspective I had not seen before in the visual kind of world. I, I, of course, examining all of these ways that black women artists reclaim motherhood or reshape motherhood in a kind of visual way, but thinking of that reclamation from the position of a child who is also, you know, like who, who, you know, is seeking not this figure of the mammy, but the, the person underneath 
that is that is a real maternal figure. Um, yeah, that was something I'd never seen before. And so, and that emotional relationship to that idea of that child really, um, I think uh, it, it helped, it, you know, sparked fireworks in my brain about kind of what the capacities for Black women artists are to actually disrupt and engage, disrupt, engage, and reconstitute entirely this visual field of Black motherhood. So that's, I mean, that's one example, but, um, you know, like some of them, like it started with like looking at that work and then, and then um, kind of coming to, uh, you know, the, the kind of magnitude of what the, the artist has to offer for the discussion of, of the particular affective register, right? So like, um, uh, but then also as I'm like through the various drafts of the book, um, a very obvious artist will like loom in the background. <laughs> and like, I'm like, no, that's too, that's too obvious. Like one example, like I did want to talk about, um, the sacred and the secular and vocal practice, right? And thinking about it through the emotional, the experience of ecstasy, that vocal practice kind of one practices that rehearses um, and then also invites others into the obvious choice always was Aretha Franklin, right? But I wanted to one, like introduce an artist who will at the start of um, writing this book was a lot more independent, like she she's still an independent artist and, but, and a lot lesser known, but now she's had multiple albums since <laughs> the beginning. And, you know, maybe some folks don't know her, but, you know, Avery Sunshine was like the primary person who I was working with. And I loved thinking with her because like Aretha Franklin, she had ties to the church. And at the time that I had interviewed her, she was still actively working as a choir director. And, you know, I'd seen her live at a backyard kind of Black Gay Pride event in DC, you know, so, and, 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 you know, so in these kind of secular settings, she, you know, she's singing the same songs, you know, she's, she turned that backyard barbecue into a, into church, separated us into altos and soprano, you know, like, and, and you know, we sang, um, <laughs> um, safe in his arms together. Right. So like, how does one create, you know, those kinds of space because it's the same practice. Right. Um, but then after multiple revisions of this chapter, it just became obvious that I needed to put the queen of soul you know, in there to kind of lay out the blueprint because there were absolutely references, vocal references that Avery Sunshine was giving that were direct to um, Aretha Franklin. And so I needed to give like the, 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 hit, the kind of reference, like I needed to do my citational practice correctly, right? And actually unpack like these two really incredible performances. It's actually, you know, at one concert or technically at, three concerts recorded over three days that her um, live at the Fillmore album um, where she sings spirit in the dark and Dr. Feelgood. And 
you know, like you get that spirit in the dark is some kind of spiritual, like church reference. And so you get that, like that kind of the way that she is invoking the aspect of um, um, ecstatic uh, uh, performance and experience that the church offers. Right. And that, you know, the, the particularly like the, the black church, um, <clears throat> Uh, both in kind of like Pentecostal and Baptist spaces, offers. Um, but in Dr. Feelgood, right, in Dr. Feelgood, that is completely a song about a sexual relationship, right? <laughs> and it ends in a show enough praise break, you know, shouting and all. And she herself in one, one of the evenings starts to actually like preach a little and like, how did we get here? It's because it's, it's a, it's a practice, it's a, it's a practice along the same line. So like, you know, like there's one space where it's, where it was like clear, like, oh, I want to think about this artist and what she's doing with the sacred and the secular. And then it kind of, I had to go, you know, to the blueprint too. Right. So it's another example. I love that you mentioned that because my next question, now I do want to say that I understand that feeling was not necessarily a memoir. It was a, a, a scholar, it's a scholarly work that has some, some of your personal life embedded into it. But you wrote intricately about spiritual and physical ecstasy in Black women's vocal styling. And so I'm glad that you we, we started with the incomparable Aretha Franklin because you mentioned a story about First Lady H, who was the minister of music at your childhood church. Oh my goodness, yes. And First Lady H taught you how to growl while singing. And I felt that that was a very important note to make that this black woman was teaching this little black girl how to use her voice and how important that is in our community. Can we talk about that for a moment? Like, did you know what you were doing? Did you know what First Lady H was trying to attempt to do? I, well, I, I thought of her as definitely trying to make me a better singer. And I absolutely, and seeing something in me that I didn't, that I wanted and I was reaching for, but I didn't quite have the confidence to embody, right? Like we, my, both my mother and I were known for being very kind of what they were called sweet spirits, you know, like quiet, you know? <laughs> and, and so, and of course, like I'm, I'm a kid, so I don't like, you know, I, I also, um, acknowledging like oh they're older um like the the this this particular church didn't have a separated youth choir versus a, an adult choir so everyone was together and um so this was something that older women this was the, like the the work of doing of that full-throated voice was the work of older women but i just so admired and i still do <laughs> admired this 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 first lady who was also the minister of music um and so the way that she 
you know, she we did this the this song, you know, long as I got King Jesus, right? And of course, starts off a been a light on, right? And you know, cheated, talked about, mistreated, you know, it goes, you know, it's all of these things. And I'm like, oh, how old am I? Like 15? Like, <laughs> like, are all these things, you know, happening to me? Like, I'm not accessing that. And so she told me to access that. <laughs> and it was, of course, a childhood thing that I accessed. It was a little girl that had lied on me in the third grade and I, and I had never told anybody about this and so I like and she told me to tell the story too like in in choir rehearsal right and so everybody else is you know really you know like they're all getting you know upset for me and so like it it was playful but it came like she wanted it to come from a real soul stirring place, even if I was downplaying it because I understood myself to be a child and for it to be a childish thing. Right. She's like, absolutely. This is real. Make it real and make it plain in this space. This is a space where you can let it out. You ain't never told nobody this, this thing that happened. So tell us right now. Right. And, and, and also the technique um, itself um, becomes tied to what the body has to do in order to do that, which is to breathe. Like from what place are you going to tell this start story? And so I actually found myself when I was speaking it and she wanted me to speak this story, being in the same kind of vocal and breath space as a growl. She lied on me, right? That starts it off right you know and so yeah I mean like just remembering this when she's incredible um um that definitely was wonderful because it was kind of like it was a technical lesson but it was also kind of an affective lesson right like it was she knew like what the capacities of my voice were as the minister of music um as an incredible musician and like what she knew that i needed the affective work as well as the kind of technical work to make this particular sound and so i'm incredibly grateful <laughs> to them I'm so grateful to her for that um because you know, singing had always, I'd always understood singing to be like a very personal practice that um, through which like I could process emotion. And I learned that from my mother, right? But my mother has a completely different vocal style (laughs) than me. And so to like access it in this other way was, yeah, it was really, it was really great. And it helped me to understand like, you know, what I've come to, have a, a kind of obsession with in, in producing this book is kind of what are the ways that the kind of the somatic ways that um, Black women's creative practice is also kind of a um, process of a, a way of one producing knowledge like, and also accessing the knowledge, like, and, and starting off by accessing the knowledge that's like locked in our bodies already. Right. Like, did I realize I was that angry about it? (laughs) You know, did like and and to what extent and what else did it mean, you know, for me, like in my whole little like 
teenager world, you know, that I carried this like third grade thing all the way into, you know, and so, and that it was the first thing that I came to. Like I probably had some other little incidents happen in between, but it was that one, you know, so like you know, that kind of knowledge, um, um, like seedling possibility that comes through the kind of somatic experience of breath of the technique of the technical work of the growl, which I'd talk about it being putting God in the body, right. Of the kind of, of the precarious, the precarious um, technical work of the growl, because it is, it, it is a technique that could also damage your voice. Right. But do, but knowing the technique itself, you know how to protect it, right? Um, all of that is such world-building work um, that allows for a lifelong practice of of ecstasy, of intentionally engaging ex- ecstasy, of inviting others into it, right? Because what that practice meant for me in practice was one thing. It also continued on to Sunday, but Sunday meant I brought the congregation into my world of feeling, right? And wow, is that powerful for a, a, a you know a young girl to see like her voice can, you know, <laughs> like invite others into their feelings of you know mistreatment, neglect. But as long as I got King, you know, like you know, but you, you get um, a, a, another set of feelings. And I'm, and I'm, you know, I think that was like the first time that I had experienced. Uh, my voice being able to to kind of do that on that register, right? I was more, I was, I was the sermonic solo girl, <laughs> you know, the, the, the amazing grace right before the, you know, the, pre- the preacher got, you know, like, but now I was like, I was on the praise team and that meant a whole different kind of level of, of spiritual sophistication too. And so reading that line, though, my my first reaction was, I wonder if that story, if that experience was foundational to feeling as a whole and in your concept and this work. Was that a start? Was that the start? Yeah. I don't I don't know if it was the start. Right. I had an earlier memory that I do talk about at the beginning of that chapter that had to do with me sitting in the car and I'm actually in a baby car seat (laughs) with my mother. And, you know, she's practicing. She you know, she my mother um, is and, and was that so that soprano that that sung with a, um, a a kind of classical training, right? And so, you know, she of course this is this is why I became like, you know, little Nita. Her name is Juanita, and little Nita, um, like in in terms of being the, the the kind of sermonic solo soloist, right? And um, so she would be practicing um, songs in the car, and you know, I don't, I of course am very young and I don't know the depth of what my mother might have been going through. Right. Um, she, at the time that I was really young was a single mom and, um, she would come home from work and play the piano and sing. She would be in the car and the car was just sound. And so I just wanted to join with her once. And it was a time like, you know, 
I don't know if I was on pitch, but I think that it would made sense that I would probably was for the first time in this moment um, because I got that total body reverberation that happens when two people are singing and it's right. Right. And the way that that made me feel like it made me tear up as a, a little person. And it's still like the memory of it makes me tear up as a, as an adult person. And so it was, there was something about that moment that was both the sharing of sound um, and also uh, space and feeling that really, uh, that was really foundation. I think that's my first memory. In the car and, and experiencing that kind of special kind of full body sound that happens when you're singing with someone who, and, and you are kind of on the same pitch and the same key and, um, and, 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 and it made like little me tear up. Right. And so I've, I think that is like, that's the kind of core first memory because I, didn't, I wanted to understand what that was unlocking. And I also wanted it to happen all the time. Right. Like I was just like, I, I kind of love this thing. I love that. I'm like both hearing and making sound and like tasting it. It was like a complete, like it it was, it it is like the the fact that it still happens, right. Is it, it, it's a complete kind of full body experience of sound, right. It was transformative. Um, And in the book I talk, you know, I use Bernice Johnson Regan's way of describing the way that it's like the song is a kind is just a vehicle to get you to singing and that that singing is the thing that will trans that, has the capacity to transform the body, right? And so I've been chasing that. <laughs> like, I, I, like I just chased that that ex- that experience. And you know, as I you know started to kind of think academically, it's like, well, what is you know, kind of what is the meaning of that? Like, not necessarily what is that in a technical way. I'm sure I could have done that in like sound studies or like psychoanalysis or you know or you know some other some kind of stem field that has to do with like what's happening in the brain um but i wanted to know the more the why of it right like the why is it why was it important to me why is it important to my mother like what what is um behind um this consistent practice that we both engaged in that i learned from her This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. And speaking of the Black church and the congregation in that that particular community, Phelan incorporates analysis of Black queerness in those spiritual spaces. Why was it important to include that narrative? Um, I wanted to, because I was talking about the capacity for vocal practice to... um, 
both perform, engage, and uh, uh, teach a kind of ecstatic practice, I had to acknowledge the ways that the setting, the environment itself, could also and does also um, facilitate a an antithetical relationship to that practice, right? That the kind of fully embodied um, aspect of the the sacred song that is that taps into the 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 sacral space, like the sexual the sexually charged the erotic space, um, that there's this there's also this um, dogmatic force within um, many um, churches that uh, teaches us that we're supposed to hate that that we're supposed to suppress that right and um, it's also, it's. I do not see it as separate from the world that would denigrate a gospel singer that became secular, right? The the aspect of the church that would practice a kind of virulent homophobia is the same one that doesn't want any kind of like uh, uh, sexual freedom um, to be or anything. Uh, remotely pointing to a sexual freedom to be happening. And so I also wanted to make it clear that this is a neutral power, right? And neutral in the sense that it can always be used for extremes, right? And that there is a way that like, yes, when uh, Aretha Franklin is giving, winds up in a praise break for, for Dr. Feelgood, right? Um, you know, and we can see how that's like this spiritual, sacred, secular, and it's a beautiful thing. It's also a vulnerable place to be in, to be with her in that musical space. Like that's like, that's also a part of that kind of core memory moment is like, it's such a vulnerable space to be unlocked um, sonically um, and in this kind of space of ecstasy that anything can come in you are allowing anything to come in and anything can come out of you and that 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 particular moment also can be used to denigrate right it can be used to denigrate queer folks it can be used to denigrate trans folks to to import a particular kind of shame around the very experience that they're having in that moment Right. And saying this is the only space that you can have that feeling if you're having it anywhere else or if you're having it in these other contexts, you know, like you're wrong that there's there's something at at the core that's wrong with you. And so, like, I wanted to make it clear that me being excited. Right. Like and I like I admit my affect completely changes when I talk about, you know, what it means to sing and be um, completely uplifted even in this kind of ecstatic experience, I also understand, feel, and know what it means to also be injected with the denigration that happens, that, that does happen using the same vocal practice, right? And so I, like, I wanted to make it clear that this is, this is not, um, this is, I'm not a PR machine, <laughs> for a false narrative about some kind of sexual freedom that's happening in black churches. It's not, it's not at all what's happening. I'm saying like it, this is how 
the opposite happens. They're like, this is a function um, of, you know, like, or this can be functionalized. This can be used to, to do the kind of opposite work. When writing about your interaction with poet Lucille Clifton's work, Joy, you write, Joy comes with a load of responsibility to my community, to my family, to my God. Can you talk about that for a moment and what you were thinking when you wrote that? I was thinking, because I was really, I was really upset. (laughs) <laughs> that um so in the the book is is this like i'm talking about lucille clifton's a theology of joy exclamation point and um it comes from this her signature like if you ever get a book signed by if you ever got a book signed by her in your life or if you ever happen upon a signed book in a used bookstore it's gonna have the same inscription it's gonna be joy exclamation point lucille clifton right and wanting her to sign something else, you know, was about me wanting to be connected <laughs> to her. And like, um, you know, as a poet, as a young poet who is really, um, who really admired her work, who really like saw myself in her work, who since has like absolutely, like she's kind of like a ref, a constant reference for me. Um, in my own poetic practice, um, I wanted to have a connection, but, and then also I wanted, and so then also I wanted her to like sympathize with me, <laughs> like in my little sob story that I was like, yeah, you know, I had this terrible experience and, you know, you're, you know, poems about homage to my hips and the poem last poem to my uterus, you know, like all of these, you know these ways I wanted to kind of like trauma bond with this this elder, like, you know, like, you know, her pause was, you know, but always joy. Right. And I just, I was offended. Like, you know, I was hurt. I felt rejected. I felt rejected in her, like wanting me to just like, you know, like get out of my pity party way of trying to connect with her. But I have since kind of, like uh thought of it as like oh the connection is the practice of joy that she was also um invested in like you know and and you know she talks about kind of she doesn't talk about her life as being some kind of like beautiful joyous thing or or that she herself is in a constant state of joy she she often talked about kind of wrestling with sadness kind of wrestling with what what like we might even call depression or, you know, like with dark stories and, and the, and traumas and, and, but this reverberation of joy, I think she was also offering me as a, as a teacher of poetry, right? Like your poem, like very quite literally your poetry isn't going to be of interest if it's on the note if it's not at all seeking this other, this greater thing called joy exclamation point. And so, um, yeah, that like, you know, it, I wrote it initially as a reflection um, at a memorial for her at the Enoch Pratt Library in Baltimore. Um, and it was interesting that so many of us had a kind of story about the joy exclamation point um, signature. Um, and so it was, 
initially written, that little passage was initially written as a kind of, you know, mourning space um, um, for her um, just a few months after she had passed away. Uh, But it, you know, was also a reflection of a a kind of great lesson in poetry writing um, and in living that that she was offering all of us in a signature. And I just want to transition just a little bit to a topic that I hate. It's near and dear to me. I love this topic because you write, anger tells us that there is more to know and its ability to do so because it is an aspect of human experience for which Black women are uniquely silenced. Why was it important to discuss Black women's anger and channeling it creatively? Creatively. I know, listen, talking about anger gets me excited. I can't even speak. I love it. I love talking about Black women and anger. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's like, what's interesting is it wasn't on my, like, again, it's another one of those moments with with the book that I wasn't invested in thinking about anger. But then I realized, like, how can I write a book about Black women's creative practice that is also about emotionality that doesn't talk about this thing, like this specter, like this big, ugly thing that's like lobbed onto Black women's emotional experience, right? And I think I, I, was, I was definitely avoiding it because I was like, well, we're more than our anger, you know? And, and you, know, you know, but I needed to step back and like actually think about the ways that, you know, what I'm really arguing in the book for is a kind of what I call a sedulous and a deep engagement with um, Black women's creative work that focuses on the emotional, that focuses on feeling, right? And so um, anger it was important to engage with because it is something that is so um, totalizing about in terms of the, the uh, image or the uh, outside framework of black women's experience that um, anger could be the reason given for any of the other affective registers that I talk about in the book. Um, like ecstasy could be mistaken, you know, for anger, you know, like, um, you know, in shame could be mistaken for like any, like any of the, and, you know, I'm writing this also in, um, before and then also during and in the wake of Sandra Bland's death and how anger was completely like, circulating around like some kind of reason for why she should die or could die or was destined to die there. Um, I was like, oh, this is dire. (laughs) Like, this is incredibly, this is, I have to talk about um, anger. And and I also had to talk about um, Sandra Bland in this kind of uh, this this discussion of of anger to communicate the stakes of how 
um, deeply invested uh, the world we live in is in denigrating and silencing Black women's knowledge by projecting anger, right? So, you know, when it came to Sandra, the story of Sandra Bland, like I'd actually written the chapter um, in full before the Sandra Bland incident happened at all. Um, but when it did, um, and, you know, I got past, like, I, I never wanted to see that video. Uh, I ended up watching it um, to kind of get a, a sense of the exchange and to note how um, everything that she said, yes, she could have been angry, should have been angry. But everything she said was a description of what Officer Insinia, what Brian Insinia was doing, right? She was a complete, like, she was completely documenting the experience. She was bringing forth knowledge, but the cloud, like, everything that he's responding to is a projection of her presumed anger, like, her irrationality, but it is his hatred that's fueling that. Right. Um, and then it becomes the story of like of her um, of this particular encounter. There's, you know, pundits talking about her being belligerent or her being arrogant, her being angry. And 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 really, like I, I was blown by this because when you do look at the and you hear and you read the transcript of the encounter, she is describing what is happening. She is like, literally, it's like a data download of what is happening and that um, rhetorical move to decide that this is a, like what she is saying is a rational anger. It's arrogance. It's is a way to silence that information. It was just <laughs> the fact that she was just giving information. Right. Um, and so that to me was like a, like a, a dire, uh, hurtful, depressing example of the stakes of of what it means to actually engage with uh, Black women's speech as knowledge producing, right? Like this isn't, Sandra Bland isn't an artist in this moment, right? She is merely speaking, um, but to engage deeply, not to kind of refute that she is angry and say like, no, we're not angry as Black women to actually fine, she's angry. What about it? Let's get into it. You know, like what, what is happening here to produce that anger, to actually take it seriously, I think is, you know, the key and important kind of methodological work that we can be doing with anger. And I did love that, that kind of like ends the book in a way, because it's like, can we focus on this formula moment that, Black women do have reasons to be angry. We're just not angry. We didn't grow out of the ground with this emotion. And so, yeah. Mm-hmm. Be like irrational or unimportant, you know. And that it comes from somewhere. And can we start asking where it's coming from? Where it's coming from, exactly. 
and, and getting into the contours of what it means to be a Black woman who knows all of those things, like knows the way that anger is projected and is so very much also actively controlling the the pathways by which they are communicating in order to kind of quell that. Because Sandra Bland could have been a whole lot like visibly angry, you know, like much more visibly angry. Like, and I think we all, and then of course I'm citing these studies where in that chapter where um where it, you know, researchers or these these researchers are finding that black women actually as like particularly in professional settings, often quell their anger and like often kind of repress their anger and that that is a practice that what is also detrimental to our health. Um, but then it also becomes an art form, you know, in terms of our um, ways of expressing um, knowledge, right? Dr. Jeb, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank for, you for, so for much. talking <laughs> for talking about feeling. Feeling is in bookstores now, so go on out. It's really good. It's really good reading. Go and Thank get you. it. Thank you. Sure.